0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on 1 Samuel called Waiting for the Kingdom. Um, so, for those of you who just joined, we've been going through, we just started. Um, going through this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and to recap that chapter quickly. It's um, continuing the story of David who is under threat from King Saul and Saul is paranoid and afraid and he sees David as a threat and he's trying to take him out and David has been um, on the run from King Saul and David is very close friends with Jonathan the crown prince, Saul's son, and he's trying to convince Jonathan that David indeed is under danger. He's under threat. And he's trying to figure out why on earth is it that Saul wants to kill me? I've acted with integrity. I've been a faithful servant. I haven't been secretly plotting to assassinate him or remove him from the throne. What is Saul's deal? Why is he trying to kill me? And Jonathan dearly loves David. He has immense respect for him. He's sworn a covenant of loyalty with him. Jonathan believes deeply in David and what God has for David. But Jonathan is really struggling to believe that Saul, his father, actually is trying to murder David. In the previous chapter, Saul had sworn to Jonathan he would give up all his attempts to kill David. And Jonathan has taken that oath, perhaps naively, at face value. Jonathan is one of those... Honest, frank, straightforward, soldierly types, and like a lot of honest people, he mistakenly believes that all those around him are honest as well. David has become much more cynical. After all, David is the one who's had to climb out the windows and dodge the spears. He's learned to his cost how dangerous Saul actually is. Jonathan has a harder time believing that. He's always had a close and open relationship with his father. He's been Saul's right-hand man and his trusted confidant. And he really can't believe that Saul would hide anything from his eldest son. And really, if you put yourself in Jonathan's place, I imagine you two would really struggle with accepting that your own father is actually an evil person there would be a huge psychological barrier to any of us really believing that about our own father. And even the most evil men in history, uh, Nazis and mobsters have had children who have defended them and believe that deep down, my father was a good guy. And so this is the awkward fact that David has to convince his friend of your father is not a nice guy. He's trying to kill me. And Jonathan doesn't realize that his closeness with his father is actually already over. There's a shadow that has fallen across the intimacy between father and son, and that shadow is Jonathan's friendship with David. And that makes it impossible, not from his end, but from Saul's end, for there to be true uh, openness between the two of them. And now Saul's deep suspicion of David has caused him to hide his true plans from his son. Saul's becoming increasingly isolated. David knows this. Jonathan doesn't. So David proposes a plan to reveal Saul's true intention. And you have to understand with this chapter, all this that's being done, these um, elaborate scenarios that are being constructed are not for David's benefit. Nothing new is being revealed to David. This is all for Jonathan's revelation. David is under no illusions about Saul. Jonathan is, and he needs irrefutable evidence of the man that Saul actually is. So David suggests that um, he absent himself from the coming feast, the new moon festivities, and hide himself in a field while Jonathan uh, makes an excuse, makes a pretense for David's absence. And David is asking Jonathan to lie to his father. And that may well have been something that Jonathan had never done before. But this is a matter of life and death. This is an emergency situation. But in our story, there seems to be another worry in David's mind. He asks Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers me roughly? Now, David's worry is not about communication logistics. He's wondering if he can be sure, 100% sure that Jonathan will still be loyal to him when Saul reveals his plans. If you think about it, Saul has very powerful arguments to sway Jonathan into killing or at least stepping aside while David is killed. Both family loyalty And self-interest argue that David is a problem and a threat that both Saul and Jonathan need out of the way for their personal and their family future. And David may have had this lingering doubt, like this situation, is it too good to be true? Is it really the case that the crown prince, the heir to the throne, is so willing to step aside so that I can enter into God's plans for me? And maybe it's an unworthy doubt, a sad suspicion of a true friend. But then again, David is in a very precarious position and he's placing his life in Jonathan's hands. And he needs to know that Jonathan can be trusted without the shadow of a doubt. Jonathan is a sensitive person and immediately he perceives what's behind David's question. And what he wants to tell David next cannot safely be told within the palace walls. They need to go out into the field, out of the city, into the barren hills to continue this conversation. And there alone, just the two of them, Jonathan calls forth God as a witness, that he will be a faithful friend to David, come what may. And Jonathan even invites a divine curse on his own head. May God destroy me if I deal falsely with you, David, in any way. And then Jonathan reveals why it is that he's doing this unusual thing, why he's casting his lot with David. Jonathan believes that the Lord will be with David just as he has been with Jonathan's father. In other words, Jonathan believes that David is God's chosen king, that David is Saul's true successor, not Jonathan. Jonathan's highest loyalty is, it's not to David, but it's to the kingdom of God. And Jonathan, I'm sure, would have willingly served as the king if God had called him, and he would have been a great king too. But somehow, Jonathan has come to the conviction that he's not God's chosen one. David is. And I highly doubt that David volunteered the fact that he'd been secretly anointed. That's the kind of thing that you would keep very close to your chest. But somehow, Jonathan on his own, I think, had discerned that David is the man after God's own heart. And perhaps that realization came to him the day he saw David bring down Goliath. Perhaps over time as their friendship developed, Jonathan arrived at this conclusion that the future, God's future lay with David, not with his own family. And it's interesting in this chapter that Jonathan is more clear-eyed about David's future than David himself is. David is anxious. He's afraid. He can hear death only one step behind him. But Jonathan is totally confident that ahead of David is the throne, that somehow God is going to bring David to reign over the people of Israel. There was no doubt in Jonathan's mind. At this moment, the friendship is really going one way. There are no favors that David can offer Jonathan. He's in a completely weak and helpless position. He can only ask for his friend to protect him. But Jonathan is sure that there is going to be a day coming when David can do him some great favors or at least his, his children some great favors. And so he asked David to swear to him one thing, show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Here's the danger that Jonathan foresees. He knows David's going to come to the throne, but his fear is that David will do what every king in the ancient Near East would do when he sees the throne and that is eliminate all possible rivals and all possible threats to the throne. The first thing a new king would do is destroy the family and the supporters of his predecessor, even um, his own brothers, if that's what it took to have an unshakable grip on the throne. And Jonathan, to prevent that, asks that David make a covenant with him now that he will repay the faithful loyalty that Jonathan is showing him. You can't pay me now, but there will be a time when you will be able to repay my kindness to you. And I'm asking you to promise that you will not forget to do that. As it will happen, as this book will play out towards the end, we'll discover that tragically, Jonathan will not live to see David crowned. But his son will, his crippled son, Mephibosheth, and David is going to have the opportunity to honor the memory of his loyal friend, Jonathan, by caring for and supporting his son. But we're getting far ahead of ourselves in the story of first and second Samuel. Today is the feast and the court gathers and Saul is sitting in the dining hall. And our narrator gives us the telling observation that he's sitting with his back to the wall. And a paranoid ruler must be on guard against all threats. Saul is not the kind of person who wants people sneaking up behind him. He needs to be facing the door and uh, he wants to be aware of all threats against him. Abner, the commander of the army is there and Jonathan seated at the table, but where is David? David's place is empty. And uh, for all the danger that David's in, the cultural norms of service and loyalty are so strong that there's still an expectation, even though Saul is trying to kill him, that David ought to be showing up to court to serve the king. Where is he? And Saul thinks to himself, something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely David is unclean. You can tell that Saul is nervous, but he's able to calm himself this first evening with A very plausible explanation for David to miss one meal. It didn't take much to make yourself ritually uncleaned, and it was a totally acceptable explanation. And I imagine that Jonathan sitting there is feeling relieved. You know what? I got all riled up for nothing. David was wrong. I was right after all. My father poses no threat to my friend. Surely I'll be able to report to him tomorrow that all is well, and it's safe for David to return. But the next night, David is not in his place either. And this time, Saul asks Jonathan for an explanation. And uh, Jonathan repeats the story that he's rehearsed with David, but Jonathan hasn't had much practice with lying. And Saul sees right through Jonathan's story and he explodes. And all the pent-up rage of a weak and frightened man is unleashed upon his shocked son. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, he shouts, how stupid can you be? Don't you realize that your friend David, who's saying all these fine things to you, don't you realize that he's using you, he's manipulating you, he's, he's lying to you so that he can seize the throne and destroy us all? Don't the sacred ties of blood mean anything to you, Jonathan? How can you bring such shame on your family? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me for he must die. Saul has long ago come to the same conclusion about David's future as his son has perhaps even before Jonathan realized, because sometimes fear discerns God's future sooner than faith does. And for a long time, Saul has been fighting a desperate rearguard action to prevent this happening. At all costs, the kingdom must be preserved. His house must remain on the throne. And in his mind, I think Saul was doing this not just for himself, But for Jonathan, he wanted to secure the throne for his son after him. That's what he wanted more than anything else. And now, to Saul's total dismay, this very son he's been doing all this for is betraying him. And Saul sits there shaking with anger. And when Jonathan interrupts to defend David, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Saul loses all control. The red mist descends before his eyes, and instead of his son's face, he sees David, and he hurls his spear across the table to finish him off once and for all. Jonathan leaps back from the table. The scales have fallen from his eyes, and to his horror, he realizes the evil that's been there in his father all along. It's a terrible loss of innocence for Jonathan, unimaginably painful. And Jonathan leaves the room in fierce anger, grieved to the bone at his father's shameful treatment of David. David, David must be warned at once and Jonathan goes out and he carries out this elaborate rigmarole with the arrows, but he abandons the plan because he needs to talk to David face to face. These um, hidden signals aren't enough. And so he sends the boy back to the city with his weapons. Jonathan is disarming himself as an expression of his non threatening intentions toward David. And David emerges from behind the stone and he bows three times in wordless respect to the character and loyalty of Jonathan. And the two men weep as they kiss. David is weeping the most because the time for parting has come. From this moment, their paths are diverging. They're going in different directions. And David is going to go into the wilderness He's going to go into hiding, knowing, as Jonathan predicted, that the Lord is sending him away. And Jonathan blesses him with his peace. And then Jonathan turns to go back to the city, back to the palace, back to his father. Both men are following God on hard paths. David will be on the run for many years, living in caves with desperate men, only one step between him and death. But Jonathan's path will be no less difficult because for the rest of his life, Jonathan is going to find himself torn between two loyalties, loyalty to David and loyalty to his father. Jonathan, cannot, he will not betray his father. And Jonathan stays with Saul and serves him faithfully to their tragic end together. That's what duty requires. That's what it means to be a faithful son. But Jonathan's true hope and his deepest loyalty lie not with Saul, but with God and with David, the man whom God has chosen. First Samuel 20 is a story about the painful cost of loyalty to God's chosen king. And this chapter really speaks to the price that all true followers of Christ must be willing to pay. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus teaches us about the cost of discipleship. And there in chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, I believe Jesus says that anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know, in the ancient world of Jesus and really in much of the world today, Loyalty to the family, loyalty to the clan trumps everything. That's where you find your identity. That's where you find your security. That's where you find your worth. It's unimaginable to live life apart from family. And of course, that is not totally contrary to the Bible because uh, scripture itself teaches us about the value of family. It's a creation of God. And one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number five, of course, is honor your father and your mother. The fifth commandment, but it's not the first commandment. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. And obedience to God and loyalty to God's kingdom must reign supreme over all lesser loyalties. And that can be very difficult to sort out, difficult and painful. And Jesus describes going through this kind of test as a torture and an execution, describes it as taking up the cross and following him. And even though this may not be something that we have had to endure, we have to remember that we have brothers and sisters throughout the world who have had to follow Jesus through this terrible cost, and we honor them for doing so. You know, all of us, though, are going to face the test in our lives about whether Jesus, for us, really is our supreme love and our supreme Lord. And not all of us are going to have Jonathan's exact test. Some of us may. But we must all surrender our deepest idol to Jesus. And it will be painful. And it will feel like a death. Because really, it is a death. What brought Jonathan through this sacrifice was not a love of pain and a love of death, but it was his love for David and his faith in David's coming kingdom. And those two things are the only things that will help us make whatever sacrifices Jesus may ask of us. Do we truly love him is the question. And are we willing to place all of our hope not in present comfort and security, which our idols offer us and may even give us, but we place our hope in his coming kingdom. You know, Jonathan is such an admirable character, one of the noblest people in the Old Testament. And he's a worthy prince who who seeks out David. This is all on Jonathan's initiative, this whole covenant, not David. Jonathan seeks out David to forge a covenant with him. And I wish I could say that we were all worthy princes and princesses who uh, sought out Jesus the same way. But of course, we know that our stories are quite different. We're not worthy. We're just the opposite. We're sinners. We're condemned. We're unclean. We're not loyal friends who can claim from Jesus the reward due to our faithfulness. But we're, in fact, enemies and traitors to his kingdom. And the wonderful news of the gospel is that despite all this, God sends Jesus to seek us out so we can participate in his kingdom, not merely to offer the opportunity of the kingdom, but actually to go after us into the highways and hedges and compel us to come in by the power of his spirit. That is the grace of God that we have all experienced if we belong to Jesus. And if that's how we've begun as enemies brought in, how much more will God treat us now that we're his friends and his children and his sons and daughters? And surely if we are faithful to Jesus now, Jesus is not going to neglect us or betray us or forget us. He promises that everyone who casts their lot in with him, the hidden King, if we cast our lot with him now and identify with him, and share with him in his suffering. We will also share with him when he enters into his full inheritance. Because nothing of what Jesus is going to receive from God is going to be kept back from us. All of it will be shared with the brothers and sisters that he has brought into his family. And so as we pray like that thief on the cross, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus is already at work Preparing a place for us. No sacrifice for Jesus will be forgotten. No price that we pay will fail to be reimbursed. And every comfort and every security and every part of our identity that we give up from human idols will be repaid a thousandfold in Him. So, Let's pray now because we are very weak disciples and we are afraid of what Jesus might demand from us if we're honest. And we need to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to prepare us, to give up what he calls us to, not reluctantly, but joyfully, gladly, knowing that ultimately we're not making a sacrifice at all. We are joining with Jesus in what he is going to receive from God. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have called us into your kingdom. And that is your sheer grace, inviting unworthy people to participate in what you are going to do in this world. And you know how, cold our love often feels, you know how weak our faith seems. And when we reflect and consider the cost that you might call us to pay, when we think about the crosses that you might command us to bear, we are afraid that we will shrink back. We don't want to shrink back and be destroyed. Oh Lord, you want to step forward in faith and love to honor this Jesus who has given up everything for us. So we ask for your grace and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts. Help us to see whatever, whatever uh, idols are in front of us right now. Not the grand, dramatic crosses we imagine in the future, but the simple things right in front of us that you're putting your finger on. And Lord, you know that we cannot give these things up unless we are deeply convinced in our hearts that Jesus is worth it. And this love, this supreme love for Jesus is something that only you can create in our hearts. And so Father, help us to love your Son as you yourself love him. Open our eyes to his splendor, his worth, and his supremacy so that our very lives might reflect that to others. In his name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org Thanks for listening.